What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. beginning of Colossians chapter 3, we're looking at the change that should take place in our life because of our connection with Jesus. And Jesus died, he rose from the dead, he ascended back to heaven, and he's going to be coming back to this earth the second time. And when we place our faith in Jesus, we have a connection to all of those four things as well. That now that we have faith in Jesus, we've died to our old life, to the old sinful ways that we used to live, and we rose to live a new life, and not now devoted and dedicated to Jesus and we have the hope that one day we are going to get a new glorified body and we're going to ascend to heaven and be with Christ and actually get to return with him as well to dwell here on earth for a thousand years and be with him ruling and reigning in this connection with Jesus. This reality of what we have with him, the change that's taken place, it, it should be something that truly does impact the way we live our life. It should change what we put on and do, and it should change what we put off and stop doing. And and these terms, put on and put off, that Paul uses here at the beginning of chapter 3, really so often they were used in the context of just putting on and and putting off clothing. And you know what? By, By using this illustration, Paul wants us to understand that there are two important things we we need to do now that we have placed our faith in Jesus. Two important things we should do because of this connection with Jesus, because of the change that has transpired in our life. The first important change is what we looked at last week. There should be a change in what we put on, a change in, in what we do. We need to put on a new direction, a new mind, a new life, a new hope. Basically, when we, when we accept Jesus, we put on a whole new set of clothes, a whole new wardrobe comes to our life. But in order for that first change to be successful, there there needs to be another change as well. And that change is the removal of the old clothes. Before we put on the new set of clothes, we need to get rid of the old clothes, the old life, the old way in which we live before accepting Jesus Christ. You know, if you're going to get a whole new set of clothes, and I'm sure, especially for you ladies, there's been times when you've gone out and shopped and, you know, you got all these new clothes and then you come to your closet and your wardrobe and your dressers and it's like, well, there's no room for this new stuff. So it's time to maybe do a little spring cleaning and get rid of some of these old things. And I'm going to put in the new stuff, but I know before I put in the new stuff, I got to get rid of the old things that are there. You know, after I first got saved, I look at some of the t-shirts that I wore before, you know, 
accepting and living for the Lord and things that I just shouldn't be wearing anymore. I remember, you know, one of the shirts I had had a big pot plan on it and I thought, you know, this is so great. You know, I like smoking pot and I like this shirt and so I'm going to wear this around and I think I'm cool. You know, and I looked at that and I realized, you know, that doesn't describe my life anymore. That's not the way I live anymore. And so this shirt would not be something that I should wear now that I'm a follower of Jesus. And, you know, one of the bands that I used to like listening to was ACDC and they have a song called Highway to Hell and I had a shirt that had ACDC Highway to Hell on it and you know it's one of those shirts I look back and I think thank goodness that isn't my life anymore thank goodness that I'm no longer on a highway to hell that now I'm on a highway to heaven because I've accepted Christ and that shirt shouldn't be something that I wore because it doesn't represent who I am anymore and so you know there were things that I literally in the clothing analogy got rid of when I came to live for Jesus because I realized this is old stuff that represents my old life. And now I need to get rid of these things and put them off. You know, sometimes as Christians, we try to put on new clothes. We want to put on the new things that God wants us to do, the new direction, the new mind, the new life, the new hope. But we try to do it without first putting off and removing our old clothes. So we want to put on the new clothes on top of the old filthy clothes. And that's not something that works well. You know, when I was in high school, I played basketball and, you know, we would actually practice before school and after school. And I remember one of our practices before school, we had lost our previous game. Our coach was unhappy with us and the practice went really long and so much that it was, you know, school had already started by the time that we now finished. And so typically we had plenty of time to come back, to shower, to change, and then go to our first class. But we show up to school and we go to the locker room and there's the principal all upset that we're late. We're late for class. And he says, there's no showering. There's no change in the clothes. Get to class. And so, you know, we grab our clothes that are the clean clothes that we typically wore. And we just kind of threw them on over the nasty basketball clothes that we had. And we went to class. When we walk in the door, we look like we typically would, you know, but when we sat down next to people, they realized, there's something different here. There's a problem. You guys smell, you know, because underneath we had this nasty, sweaty, stinky, you know, basketball practice uniform on. And over top of it, we had our typical school clothes. And, you know, it just doesn't work when you try to put on top of the old clothes, the new clothes. And so we need to put off the old life. Don't try to do them both. Oh, you know, I'll put on the new while I still hold on to the old. It doesn't work. It just keeps you from what God has. You see, that new direction that we looked at last week, you know, if you're going to really head in that new direction, you got to put off the old direction. Because if you don't, you're going to keep getting drawn back the old way. You're going to get keep getting pulled in the direction that you shouldn't be going. Why? Because you haven't put it off. And you're trying to put on something without putting off the other. And it brings conflict. It hinders you from what God's trying to do. So when it comes to the change that needs to take place in our life because we placed our faith in Jesus, we need to put off the old ways and put on the new ways that God wants us now to live. And here in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 3, Paul's going to give us this list of things that we need to get rid of, things that we need to put off from our life. 
And as we look at this list, I'm sure that there's at least going to be one thing that's going to stand out to you. One thing that you're going to look at and say, yeah, that's something that's still in my life. That's something I still struggle with. That's something I haven't really put off the way that I should. And my challenge to you is you look at this, you wouldn't just walk out and say, oh, well, you know, that's just me or, or that's just my struggle or that's just something, you know, that I just deal with, that you would really seek the Lord to help you to stop, to help you to truly put it off, to get serious about the sin that we have in our life. Don't make excuses. Don't just say, you know what, that's that's the way I am. I've heard that from so many people with a particular sin. Well, that's just the way I am. No, that's the way you were. That's what you were before you accepted Christ. That's what your life was dominated by then. But no, now you're different. Now you're a new creation. Now you've changed. You don't have to be that way anymore. And so let's not buy into the lie that that's just how I am. No, God wants to change you. He wants to change me to something different. But I want to encourage you with the reality that, you know what, God's not going to force you. He's not going to force you to put off this stuff. The Spirit of the Lord will give you all you need to do it. He's going to encourage you. He's going to show you the areas of your life that need to change, but He won't force you to do it. That's a choice that we have to make to recognize these areas and to choose to put them off from our lives. Now, this list of things that we're going to look at, it's probably not going to be anything new. I don't think you're going to be like, wow, I didn't know that was a sin. You know, I think this is going to be some common knowledge for us. So I'm not going to spend a bunch of time looking at each thing and giving a a bunch of examples of, you know, how that's evident in our lives. I think that's going to be pretty clear to us. But I do want to take some time as we go through this just to get practical. What can we do to practically put these things off so that we can do this challenge that we're given here. So let's look at verses 5 through 11 and see the challenge that Paul gives to us. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, Wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man and his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Jew or Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul starts off with a word here that he uses is the word therefore. Now, whenever you see this word therefore, the author is connecting what he has just said with what he is about to say. So what he says before the therefore is the cause of what he's about to say after the therefore. So the therefore points us back to what Paul just told us, this connection that we have with Jesus, that we're connected to his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his return. You know, this connection is what he's just revealed to us. And now he says, because of that, therefore, that's the cause of what I'm now going to share with you. Because of all this connection with Jesus, there's something that we now need to do, something important for us to no longer do more specifically, to put to death your members which are on the earth. Put to death. You know, the the term here that Paul uses of put to death is something that 
is a very strong term. It means to completely exterminate, to wipe out entirely, to make dead. This is, you know, a very, very powerful word that uh, so often I think when we look at our past sin and we look at those things that, you know, we used to do, this is not kind of the mindset we have. We, we don't often look at it in these very strong terms. And Paul says to do this, put to death our members which are on the earth. Now, when Paul says our our members which are on the earth, he's speaking of our physical bodies, the parts that we have of our physical bodies. And don't misunderstand Paul here. He's not saying that we should literally kill our bodies, that he's telling us all to commit suicide. That's not what he's saying at all. He's revealing to us that, you know what, we need to take some extreme measures to stop these things. We need to take this very seriously and make sure that we're doing whatever it takes to rid ourselves of these sins in our life. You see, sinful actions need the members of our body to act them out. You lust with your eyes. You steal with your hands. You lie with your tongue. You commit sexual immorality with parts of your body. You murder with parts of your body. And so, you know, we need to stop these things from happening. We need to stop these parts of our body from engaging in this sinful behavior. And so Paul uses this very strong term to help us see the severity of the problem and how we need to deal with it. Now, unfortunately, oftentimes when it comes to dealing with our body's desire to sin, we don't deal with it as strongly as we should. Instead of putting them to death, we just try to limit how often I indulge in it. I don't want to go to that extreme. I mean, exterminate this? Come on, that seems so final. Why don't I just avoid it for a week? Why don't I just avoid it for a month? Why don't I just put a little limitation on this sin that I like, but I don't really want to put it to death. I don't want to see it gone for good. But here's the problem with that approach. Adam Clark wrote this. To gratify any sensual appetite is to give it the very food and nourishment by which it lives, thrives, and is active. Here's the problem with the mindset that says, you know what, I won't put it to death. I'll just, you know, limit it. I'll just, you know, put it off for a week or two or a month, and then I'll indulge once, and then I'll put it off again for a little while. Every time that we feed our flesh... We give it power. Every time that we feed these things, these temptations, these desires, these sins that we give into, it just strengthens it more. And what does that do? It makes it harder for us to resist it. If we starve it out, it's eventually going to die. But the problem is we might starve it for a week and then we give it a big meal and then it's ready to go for another week and another one month. And and we think, man, why don't I, you know, why can't I just overcome this? We keep feeding it. And every time we feed it, we give it power to make it more difficult for us to ultimately resist it. Well, Paul starts off here with a very general statement. Put to death your members that are on the earth. And then he's going to get specific. These are the areas that I want you to put to death. He gives us five specific things. Five things we need to make sure that are no longer a part of the use of our bodies. Now, it's interesting that all five of these things have a connection to sexual sin. He's going to talk about several different areas of emotions, of how we use our words, but he starts off with this 
big issue. It was an issue there in Colossae. It's definitely an issue in our culture today. And when something is a big issue in the culture that you live, it's only a matter of time before that permeates into the church, before people in the church also start dealing with and struggling with and be tempted by. And so because sexual sin is so prevalent in our culture, this is a very good challenge for us as well. The first thing that Paul tells us not to use our bodies to engage in is the word translated fornication. This Greek word translated fornication is the Greek word pornea. It's where we get our English word pornography. It's a very broad word, meaning any sexual relationship or act outside of the marriage covenant. So it pretty much covers anything. Anything that is outside of God's ordained plan of sex within a marriage between a man and a woman. Anything else? This word's revealing is sinful. The second thing that Paul tells us not to use our bodies to engage in is uncleanness. The Greek word translated uncleanness means a lustful, immoral, and shameful lifestyle. It's speaking of this shameful lifestyle that's given over to sexual sin. You know, oftentimes, no matter what the sin is, especially with sexual sin, we, we start off usually trying to hide it. We usually don't make it so evident that we're dealing with this, that we struggle with this, that we're engaging in it. It's usually something that's more hidden, but when it becomes a lifestyle, as opposed to something that's, you know, one-off here, one-off there, but it just becomes part of your life. You're, you're just doing it constantly. You move from this shameful, I don't want anyone to know, to this shameless, I don't care. I'm just going to live my life the way I want, and I don't care who sees it. And we definitely see that in our culture with the, you know, we have some serious sexual immorality, but it's just blatant. It's just flaunted. People don't even care anymore. Or even like 20, 30, 40 years ago, it was very different than what it is now, where it's just out there and people just have no problem with showing the lifestyle that they live. The third thing that Paul tells us not to use our bodies to engage in is passion. The Greek word translated passion means vile passions, lustful desires, and unrestrained affections. This is speaking of someone whose sexual passions and desires, they no longer have boundaries. They no longer have restraints. They've now gotten to the point where, you know, they don't care. You know, anything goes in their mind where it's like there's no longer a boundary of how things should be, whether it be man with a woman as it was designed. Well, now it can be man with man, woman with woman. We can kind of just put anything out there we want because the boundaries have been removed. And we see that definitely in our culture as well. The fourth thing that Paul tells us not to use our bodies to engage in is evil desires. This Greek word translated evil desires means a craving, longing, or desire for what is forbidden by God, especially those things that are sexually immoral. You know, once you remove the barriers, once you walk away from God's design, from God's plan, from the barriers that God has established within sex, all of a sudden you move to this place. You come to this place where now you're into these desires that are completely evil, that are ones that are forbidden by God. Those are the ones that you're drawn to. Those are the ones that you want to engage in. The fifth thing that Paul tells us not to use our bodies to engage in is covetousness. The Greek word translated covetousness means the greedy desire to have what someone else has, to have something that doesn't belong to you. Now, this definitely, you know, is a broad thing that we can be covetousness uh, in lots of different areas. But the fact that we see all these different words before it connected with sex and sexual immorality, 
you know, this also connects us, uh, with sexual immorality because it's one of the reasons why people engage in these things that they shouldn't. Because they want someone else's wife. They want someone else's husband. They're not content with their own, and so they have a covetous desire for something that doesn't belong to them. Something that they should never be pursuing. You know, that, that girl or that guy, it doesn't belong to you, but yet you don't care. You're going to go after it anyway. Those fantasies, those things that you're watching, those things, you do, they don't belong to you, but it doesn't matter. I'm not satisfied with what I have, and so I'm going to try to go get something that doesn't belong to me. Now, God created each one of us with a sexual desire. It's not something that is bad, but he also created us with the boundaries in which these desires should be fulfilled. And those boundaries are, are very clear in Scripture, and they're very limited. There's only one avenue in which we can take the desires that God has given us sexually and, and actually fulfill them, and that is within a marriage covenant relationship. And I wish I didn't have to say it, but I had to say it and spell it out, between a man and a woman. This is the only marriage that God recognizes, and it's the only outlet in which you can actually fulfill this type of relationship and within that it's wonderful within that it's God's blessing within that it's God's gift but anything outside of that is a sin so watching pornography is a sin having sex before being married is a sin having sex with someone who's not your spouse is a sin men having sex with men women having sex with women the list can go on and on anything outside of that marriage relationship is sinful and it's not just the action, the thoughts, the lust, you know, those are all sinful as well if they're not geared toward your spouse. So Paul lists these five things, which basically tell us the different ways that we can sexually sin outside of marriage. But the easiest thing to remember, instead of trying to remember every word that he uses and all the definitions that he brings to us, is just remember this. Any sexual thought, lust, passion, desire, or action not geared toward the spouse that you were married to, it's a sin. Anything outside of that is wrong. And Paul's challenge is don't let any part of your body be guilty of that. Put those things to death. Jesus says something very similar in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 29. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. You know, something that Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is he takes these sins in the law, these things that the law said not to do, and he says, you know, you heard it was said, you know, by rabbis, by other people before about the law, but I say to you, and he takes what they thought of like, well, I'm not guilty of adultery. I've never committed the physical act. And he brings a whole new element to it. And he says, well, actually, you might be not guilty of it physically, but you are guilty of it in the heart if you've lusted after a woman in your heart. So Jesus is saying it's even deeper than that. It's more than just the physical. He brings out this other reality. And notice that Jesus, just like Paul, uses some very strong words. Paul says, put to death, exterminate. And notice what Jesus says. If your right eye causes you to sin because you're lusting after women, pluck it out, cast it from you. 
For it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, just like Paul wasn't literally say commit suicide when he says put to death your members, Jesus isn't literally say cut out your eye, but what he's bringing is a, is a strong picture, just like Paul, of do whatever it takes to deal with these things. If you have an issue that is a struggle for you and one of the members of your body, like your eyes are constantly lusting, you need to take that seriously and take extreme measures to deal with it. So if you're struggling with sexual sin, I want to challenge you. I think too often our culture just says it's no big deal, and so we kind of approach it that way. We don't take the measures necessary to deal with it because we don't see it for what it really is. So if you're struggling with watching pornography, you haven't been able to overcome that, you need to take stronger measures. If you're typically watching things on your phone, get rid of it, sell it, go buy a flip phone, go buy a phone that has no internet access, take that temptation completely from you if you can't overcome it in other fashions. You know, if there's computers or there's other tablets or the thing that you're using, you know, there's plenty of software that you can put on there. There's things that you can do to help protect you. And instead of just saying, oh, you know, I'm going to overcome it, well, recognize, no, I got a problem. And so I'm going to need to take bigger measures in order to overcome this problem instead of continuing to fall back into it. And if you're struggling with Tempting, you know, someone's tempting you with sexual sin. Someone's tempting you, you know, in any area of that way. I would encourage you, you know, take some extreme measures. You know, never be alone with them. Definitely never be alone in a bedroom with them. But you know what? If it still continues to be a struggle, then I would say, you know, maybe that person needs to be someone you just remove from your life. You know, if it's constantly a temptation, something that's drawing you into a place where you don't need to be, be careful. Sometimes you go at work or other places, oh, it's just harmless flirting. You know, it's okay. It's just kind of just a little fantasy. I know I'm never going to indulge in it. No, it's not harmless. It's the start of something that ultimately can end very bad. You know, rarely do you see people just jumping straight into adultery. It starts with that so-called harmless flirting. It starts with those fantasies that think, oh, that's not going to be a big deal. No, it grows, and then all of a sudden you want to indulge in it. You want to act it out. And so stop it before it even starts. Well, now in verses 6 and 7, Paul's going to give us two reasons why we should put these things to death. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. These sexual sins that Paul is telling us to put to death are the same sins that bring the wrath of God upon those who do them. You know, I think this statement that it's bringing the wrath of God really brings up two important things that should encourage us to put to death this stuff. The first is the fact that God's wrath is poured out on those who do these things. It reveals the severity of the sin. You know, we need to be very careful not to judge the severity of sin based on our own opinion or based on our the world's view of that sin. There should be only one view that matters, and that should be God's view. What does he say about that sin? How severe to him is it? And I think this is something that's really been a problem in the church world because our culture is desperate to normalize and minimalize 
this type of sexual sin. You see it in pretty much every TV show that we watch nowadays. Every movie almost has this in there. And they're just trying to make it normal. They're trying to minimalize that this isn't a problem, that this isn't a big deal. Seems like everybody just meets up and then they're, you know, they're not married and they're sleeping together. And, you know, there's these things that just, hey, there's no big deal. There's nothing wrong with this, is what our culture wants us to believe. That is acceptable. Because we're bombarded with this world's view of sin, sometimes we lose sight of what God thinks. Sometimes we lose sight of how severe it actually is. And the problem with that is when you don't recognize the severity of the sin, it usually leads you to not be very serious about dealing with it. When you do recognize how severe it is, it hopefully brings you to a place like what Jesus and Paul are saying, put it to death, pluck it out, do whatever it takes to get rid of it. Why? Because it's so severe, because it's so damaging, because it brings such devastation to your life. So we need to recognize, hey, who cares what the world thinks or maybe even my own personal view? That's irrelevant. What does God say? What is his view of this sin? That should be the only thing that I make my decisions based on. The second important thing that we should uh, encourage us to put to death these sins are the consequences that they bring to our life. Sin brings consequences. Every time we do them, they bring consequences. And you know what? We should be quite aware of that. Paul says, we used to live in these sinful ways. He's bringing it up. "You, You guys should know this. I mean, you were under God's wrath. You guys experienced these things. This is how you used to live your life. That's what your life was all about. And when you engaged in those things, you know what the consequences were. You know what brought into your life. So we should be fully aware of the damage and devastation that these will bring into our lives because, hey, we used to be there. We used to love this stuff. We used to engage in these things. You know, I think Satan does something really effective. The Bible says he's the father of lies. You know, something that I find that he's done in my life, I'm sure he does very effective in yours as well, is he's really good at reminding you of the past pleasure of sin, but not the pain. Great at reminding us of how good the old life was, but not the devastation, not the bad things, not the problems. Oh, remember that party and how wonderful it was and when you got high and how great that felt? Yeah, you don't remember puking in the toilet afterward. You don't remember the other things. You just remember the good stuff. We struggle with that, and Satan's good at this. You know, you look at the nation of Israel, and that was a huge problem with them. We're going through the book of Exodus right now, and we're in the midst of how horrible it is for them as slaves in Egypt. But I find interesting that the God delivers them, and they're in the wilderness. And what is it they do in the wilderness? They constantly think back towards Egypt with fondness. Oh, it was so much better in Egypt. The food was so much better. Our life was so much better. No, it wasn't. You were slaves. You were hated. You were miserable. You were crying out to God, deliver us. And he does. You're finally delivered. And then they look back with fondness to the place where they think, oh, that was so great. No, it wasn't. But Satan's great at that. He's great at getting us to look back to what we used to have in this fond way of how wonderful it was. I should go back to that. When the reality is, no, it was horrible. It brought devastation and destruction, not only to me, but the people I love. You know, sometimes we read a statement like, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. We say, well, that's not talking about me. I'm not going to have the wrath of God on me. I've accepted Christ. And that's true. It's a wonderful blessing. We have been saved from God's eternal wrath. 
But you know what? We haven't been saved from God's discipline. We haven't been saved from the natural consequences of sin. And sometimes we think, well, you know what? If I just confess it, there's not going to be any consequence. No, that's not true. If you confess it, you will be forgiven. If you confess it, that's a great thing for your relationship with God and confession it before others, great. But guess what? There are sins that you will commit. If I go out and murder someone, I can pray to God, He'll forgive me, but I'm going to prison. There's this consequence that's coming to my life that I'm not going to escape. And sometimes we miss that reality. But there's also the other thing. God loves you. And because He loves you, He's going to make sure that He disciplines you to stop doing the things that you're doing. John MacArthur said this, Although believers have been delivered from God's wrath, they are subject to His chastening. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6 reminds us not to forget, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by Him. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son whom He receives. God will react against sin. The unbeliever will experience His eternal wrath and the believer His loving chastening. Either way, all who pursue sin will suffer the consequences. This is something we just need to be aware of. Yes, we're blessed that we're not going to suffer eternal consequences for our sin because we put our faith in Jesus, but there are present consequences. His discipline and the reality of the consequences that come into our life. You know, as a kid, really one of the only reasons I didn't commit certain sins was because of my fear of my dad's discipline. It wasn't because I wanted to live a holy life. It wasn't because I wanted to be good. I didn't want to get spanked. That was it. It was that that motivated me. The fear of discipline motivated me to do what was right. And if nothing else is motivating you, I wish that I was motivated more by, you know, I just want to please, I just want to love, I just want to obey. But you know what? Let this motivate you. God is your loving Father, and He will discipline you if you engage in sinful behavior. He loves you too much to let you get away with it. Just like for you who have kids, you love them too much to just let them live the way they want. You know it's not good for them. You discipline them to help them learn to live the way that they should. And God does the same thing for us. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, Christians can never sin cheaply. They pay a heavy price for iniquity. Transgression destroys peace of mind, obscures fellowship with Jesus, hinders prayers, and hurts those around us. And I think this just should be a good reminder. We sometimes buy into the lie, oh, yo, yeah, there's just a cheap price. It's not going to cost much. It's never the case. There's always a price to be paid. And it's oftentimes paid not just by you, but by those you love that are being hurt by the choices that you're making. So we should put to death sin because of how severe they are to God and how hurtful and damaging they are to us. So Paul starts off with these five things. Put them to death. Two reasons why we should do it. And now he's going to tell us there are things we need to put off. Six of them in particular. Let's see what he has to say. But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. 
The Greek word here translated put off means to separate or depart from. To put or take something away. To throw it off and be done with it. So I love this mindset. It's not just like, you know, with our clothes, when we put it off, we put it in the laundry, we'll put it back on. This is the mindset of just take it off and it's it. You're done with it. You don't want to ever put it back on again. You don't want to ever go back there anymore. Imagine just kind of the, the filthy, nasty thing that you had on. It's like, man, there's no laundry that's ever going to fix this. I don't want it. It's stained. It's gross. It stinks. It's away from me. But that was our old life. The old way we used to live, we should have that mindset of, I want to put that off and never put it on again. And so Paul shares with us six things that we need to throw away from our life to be completely done with. And the first three things really deal with emotions, feelings that we have that we should not engage in, that we should not do. And then he gives us three ways in which we shouldn't speak. And so let's start with these feelings and emotions that we need to put off. Now, the three feelings and emotions that Paul shares here are very similar, similar in their meaning, and they're also connected to one another. They kind of build on each other. The first word that Paul uses is anger and then wrath and then malice. The Greek word translated anger means a violent emotion, a strong feeling of outrage, to be furious and greatly annoyed. The Greek word translated wrath means fierceness and indignation, a state of intense displeasure or rage. It refers to a burning anger which flares up and burns with the intensity of a fire. So wrath is when you get angry so much that you finally just blow up. So the anger is the starting point. The wrath is when that anger increases, increases, and now you just blow up on someone. And the Greek word translated malice means ill will towards someone with a desire to injure them or do them harm. So malice describes this vicious intention and expresses the desire to hurt one another and that you rejoice in it. You take pleasure in someone else's pain. You take pleasure in the fact that you have caused them hurt. That's malice. But these three are, are connected. They kind of build on each other. You start with that anger. And as you're continually angry with someone, that feeling of outrage often leads to malice. The ill will towards someone with the desire to injure them and to, to harm them. And that malice usually leads to wrath where you just blow up on them. And everything gets really bad from there. And I'm sure that all of us have experienced all three of these emotions maybe more times than we would like. And what Paul is saying is now as followers of Jesus Christ, connected to Jesus, to live like Jesus, these things don't belong in our life anymore. Anger, malice, wrath, these things shouldn't be the emotions that describe us anymore. We need to put them off. You know, I think it's interesting, a lot of people look at the first list of five and they think, well, that's just so you know horrible, but these aren't so bad. I mean, fornication is so much worse than anger and, you know, evil desires worse than malice. And we kind of just, you know, belittle these sins like they're not that big of deal. And sometimes we totally dismiss them. You know, that's just the way I am. So deal with it. Or I'm Irish or I'm Italian. That's just my heritage. Sorry, I get angry a lot. I got no control over my emotions. The reality is these emotions are sinful. And guess what? You do have control over them. Or God wouldn't say, put them off. He wouldn't tell us to do something we're incapable of. 
If we truly didn't have control of our emotions, he would say, sorry that your emotions control you. You know, I wish they didn't. No, he says, put them off because he realizes, no, you have control. You know, I'd always laugh with my mom. She would be so upset with us all the time. We were bad kids a lot. And she'd be screaming at us. And then the phone would ring. And she'd get on the phone. And she'd be like, Matthew, Stephen, hello. And it was like this total change. And she would have this full conversation like everything was normal and nice. Oh, yeah, how you doing? And then right when she hangs up, you know, she'd be coming after us again. But, you know, the reality is she had control over her emotions. She was upset for good reason for things that we did. But yet, you know, she could control herself if she chose to. Just sometimes she didn't. Um, so Paul shares these three areas of emotions that we need to put off. But he also says there's, there's more than just the emotions. There's also the way in which we speak. There's three ways that we shouldn't speak any longer as Christians. Blasphemy, filthy language, and lying need to be put away from us. The Greek word translated blasphemy means to slander, to speak reproachfully, or to defame, especially of a divine majesty. It's the utterance of false charges which defame, belittle, or damage another's reputation and causes them to fall into disrepute or to receive a bad reputation. Now, these false charges that are ultimately designed to bring down someone's reputation, if they're directed towards God, we typically call that blasphemy. And if they're directed towards others, we typically call that slander. And you'll see in some of your translations, it's slander. And in the New King James, it's blasphemy. But no matter who it's directed to, if it's directed towards God, it's a sin. If it's directed towards someone else, it's a sin. You know, this shouldn't be something that we're ever doing, that we're trying to defame and damage and, you know, ultimately destroy someone's reputation with things that are not true. The Greek word translated filthy language means speech that is obscene, extremely dirty, despicable, and unpleasant. That pretty much describes most of the speech that we have in our culture today, so much of the speech that's in movies today. You know, about a year ago, Jenny and I, you know, started using this thing called VidAngel. Uh, you can take, you know, any movie that you watch and you can take all the nudity out. You can take all the, you know, cussing out and things, but you got to go through and you literally have to click on every single word that you want out of there. And so it'll say, you know, cussing. And sometimes we just don't even realize we're kind of numb to it. And some of these movies, it'd be like 110 F words and like, you know, 25 other. And you're just like, man, and you got to click on all of them too to get rid of them all. But, you know, it's just crazy that there's so much and it's just becoming worse and worse of this kind of speech is now just acceptable, but not to God. The Greek word translated lie means to tell deliberate falsehoods, to intentionally deceive. So Paul says there are three things we shouldn't use our mouth to say. Three things we should put off from our speech. Blasphemy, filthy language, and lies. So as Christians, we should never slander, defame, or speak reproachfully of someone, especially of God. We should never say things that are obscene, dirty, or despicable. And we should never deliberately say things that are false. So Paul says, put to death these things. Put off these things. And notice that he has a whole list of things, certain actions, thoughts, desires, emotions, speech. There's a lot of things that he lists that we shouldn't have in our life anymore. But you know what? Even with how big this list is, it's not exhaustive. It's not like, all right, this is it. There's more things that we need to put off. But you know what? If we can just start here, we got a good starting place. 
If we do what Paul says here, if we put these things off in our life, I'm sure we would be all doing probably better than we are presently. And if so this wasn't in our life, we can start looking at the other things the Word of God tells us to also put off from our life. Paul finishes saying, Since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. You know, with this final statement, there's that challenge again of putting off and putting on. But I think what also Paul is bringing out, this reality that we're all in the same boat. You know, we're all justified the same way. We come to Jesus as the only way that we will be forgiven of our sins, saved just as we never sinned. But you know what? Once we all accept Christ, we're now in the same boat as well. The sanctification process. And that's what it is, a process. It starts the day we accept Christ. It ends the day we die. And in that whole time, the process of becoming more like Jesus is happening. And we're all within that. And I think so often, especially when we're seeking to put off and put on, we sometimes you know, think we're better than others. And Paul wants us to remind us, hey, we're not better. Jews aren't better than Greeks. Circumcised aren't better than uncircumcised. Scythians aren't better than barbarians. Free people aren't better than slaves. There's a unity and an equality that comes when we put our faith in Jesus Christ because we all come the same way and we're all now equal in the eyes of God as His children. So no matter what background we come from, doesn't make it like, well, I came as a Jew, so I'm better than you, or I came as a free man and you were a slave. No, we all now are equal, an equal playing field. And I want to finish just with some practical encouragement. I imagine that as we've looked at this list of things to put to death, things to put off, probably each one of us have found at least one that kind of hits our heart and we realize, yeah, there's an area that I struggle with. That's something that I haven't put off the way that I should. That's not something I put to death like I should. And so what can we practically do to put these things to death, to put them off from our life? Now, studying the Bible, prayer, both essential, both vital, something that should be happening on a daily basis. But, you know, we know that. So, you know, I'm just going to throw that out there as like, yeah, that's a given. That should be something that we should be doing. But let me throw out a different practical challenge besides that. The putting on and putting off process is something that goes hand in hand. Something that needs to take place at the same time. So don't just emphasize and focus on one to the neglect of the other. They should come together as something that you need to work on at the same time. So as you put things off, at the same time you should replace that with something that you want to put on. Paul makes this very clear in Ephesians chapter 4. He says this, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which goes corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, now notice this list of what he does of putting off and at the same time putting on. Put away lying, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who is in need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. I want you to notice something very important here that Paul does as he shares this, 
Every time Paul tells us of what we should put off, right away he says, and replace it with this thing that you should put on. And this is the pattern, I think, as we, we seek to do this. We seek to put action to this and apply this to our lives. Let's do what Paul is challenging us to do. We're not just called to stop sinful behavior. We're also called to replace it with godly behavior. And that's really you know, so much of what the sanctification process is because this word sanctification means to be set apart from the world and set apart to God. And so there's two parts to the sanctification process. There's the things that we want to be set apart from, no longer do. That's the things we put off, the old life, the old man, the old way we used to live. And that puts us separated from the world. But then there's the other side. We want to be separated to God. How do we do that? Well, those are the things that we put on. Those are the godly things that we add. And so that's part of the sanctification process of both of those things are essential as we do this. And it's important for us to understand that and move forward with that. They go hand in hand in order for them to be effective. So if you're just trying to put things off in your life, and at the same time you're not replacing them with anything godly, that time and that effort is kind of wasted in some regards because you're going to fill it with something. Unfortunately, it's not just going to be something godly. And so we got to make sure that we do that. Paul says, therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. Okay, when you stop lying, replace it with speaking truth. Those two go hand in hand. Don't just focus on, I'm not going to lie anymore, I'm not going to lie anymore. Well, actually replace that and start telling the truth. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor with his hands, working what he's good, that he may have something to give to whom, him who is in need. All right, so stop stealing from people. But don't just focus on that. Go get a job, earn money, take the money, and give to people who are in need. So instead of taking from people... Make a conscious effort to earn so that you're now capable of giving to people. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it might impart grace to the hearer. So don't just put off corrupt words. Replace them with words that are good and edifying to others. You know, this is the same mindset that we should have with fasting. A lot of people have a, a skewed concept of fasting. You know, I just, you know, don't eat and then I'm good. No, the purpose of fasting is to deny the flesh. And at the same time that you're denying the flesh, feed the spirit. If you're just not eating, that's not biblical fasting. That's called a diet. If you don't replace that with something spiritual, it isn't doing you any good except maybe losing you some weight. So recognize I am denying my flesh what it craves, food. And maybe I'm going to deny that for a whole day. And maybe I do 30 minutes of breakfast and 30 minutes of lunch and 30 minutes of dinner. You know what? I'm not going to eat this day. And so in that breakfast 30 minutes, I'm going to feed myself spiritually. I'm going to go dig into the Word of God. And at lunchtime, I'm going to spend 30 minutes in prayer. And at dinner, I'm going to spend 30 minutes in worship. And now I've taken that time that I denied my flesh and I've fed my spirit, which is the ultimate goal, so that I might grow through that. And it's kind of the same process as we're putting off and putting on. Yeah, I need to deny my flesh. Not just food. I need to deny much worse things than at once. And I need to put those things off. But at the same time, I need to replace it with the godly things that are the opposite of these things that God is telling me to put off. And if we will focus on that, we're going to be good. 
don't just focus on, you hear this message, man, there's all these things I need to put off, and today I'm just not going to do this anymore. Well, actually, the better thing to do is to put the main focus on the thing you're going to put on your life instead of the thing you're going to take away. And I've learned this from experience. I spent so many years trying to just put off, put off, and I was failing and failing, and God just showed me, you know what? Spend the majority of your day just focused on what you should put in its place. And watch how you naturally put off the other thing. That's what Galatians 5.16 tells us. Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Notice what we're told here. If you're walking in the Spirit, there's a natural byproduct to that. You'll stop walking according to the flesh. You live life the way that the Spirit wants, you're going to stop living life the way the flesh wants. If you start telling the truth all day long, guess what? That's going to be natural that happens in your life. You're not going to be telling lies. And so we don't just need to dwell upon what I'm putting off. Really what I want to dwell upon are the things that I'm putting on. And I love the fact that the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, all those things are the opposites of all this stuff that we're being told, put off. If, if the fruit of the Spirit is evident and coming out of my life, there's just going to be this natural thing that, you know what, I'm going to stop doing a lot of these things that I've been doing. And that's why time with Christ is so vital, time in His Word, time in prayer, because that's what helps us grow spiritually so there's a natural uh, fruit coming out of our lives. But I just want to challenge you in a practical way. Yeah, recognize what needs to go. Understand what you should replace it with and really spend more time of your day seeking the Lord to help you put the thing in place that you need to put on as opposed to just dwelling so much on what needs to go off. And I think one thing we really need to remember is it's possible. You know, sometimes we look at these things and sometimes we've been defeated so many times by something that we haven't put off for years. We need to remember God never asks us to do something, commands us to do something that he won't give us the power to accomplish. In our strength, in our own effort, in our own power, you're not putting off anything. But we shouldn't be depending on our own strength and power and effort. Ultimately, I rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in me. He is the one who gives me what I need. He is the one who can help me put off the stuff that's been a struggle that I've been holding on to, that I haven't wanted to let go. He says, no, I'm going to enable you to do it. And so as you see challenges like this in Scripture, recognize it's possible because the God that we serve is powerful and He loves us and He can give us what we need to do this. So even if you've seen a lot of failure in a certain area, don't give up and think, I'm never going to overcome this. I'm never going to be able to deal with, I'm never going to be able to you know, get past this. No, you can't. First, you need to recognize its severity. Second, you need maybe to take some more drastic measures, but ultimately completely depend upon God to help you accomplish it because it's not going to be something you accomplish on your 